0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal.
1: And I'm Tracy Alloway. Uh, Tracy,
0: you know, it's interesting having watched the aftermath of uh, two separate crises now because you start to see similarities in the sort of stories that people tell after each one of them.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, I also think it's really interesting to see how much um, opinions kind of change. In retrospect, so I remember, for instance, after the 2008 financial crisis, people would get upset if you suggested that quantitative easing could have an impact on stocks. Like if you actually said there was an asset substitution effect, people would think that you were crazy. I remember writing an Alphaville post on this at the time and getting a bunch of comments saying it was completely wrong. And now, of course, the idea that QE pushes up stocks, you know most people sort of accept that even if it may or may not be true. But yeah, you're right.
0: You were really ahead of the curve back then. I think.
1: Uh, Thank you. I'm just humble bragging.
0: Like talking about asset substitution effects. But I also think like the, the, the dominant narrative like out there just in the sphere mm. and the broad things is all this idea of like QE would inevitably lead to inflation. Yeah. Maybe even hyperinflation, all this government spending. And obviously we saw a lot of talk around that and Uh, 2010. And we see a lot of talk about it now, just this idea that government policies, particularly U.S. government policy, is reckless and we're going to destroy the value of the dollar.
1: Yeah. And to offset what I just said about that Alphaville post, I'm pretty sure I also wrote things on Alphaville about the coming hyperinflation, (laughs) or at least I summarized a bunch of notes about that, uh, you know, back in 2008, 2009. But you're right. That was sort of, well, it was the big concern after 2008, yeah. and we saw it kind of come back uh, in 2020 with the announcement of all this additional government spending. There are always concerns that it's going to lead to inflation, even though we've now had, you know, over a decade of central banks missing their inflation targets.
0: Right. So if you ever point out, it's like actually inflation isn't mild or whatever, or it, you know, QE is probably, you know, doesn't have much of an inflationary impact or misunderstanding of the deficit. What happens is if you say that, that gold bugs like yourself or silver bugs like (laughs) your dad respond with like memes of people pushing wheelbarrows of uh, the Deutschmark uh, during the Weimar hyperinflation and tell you why you're wrong.
1: Let me tell you, Joe, if the inflation ever comes, I'm going to be uh, stacking my my silver and gold in your face and you're going to be very, very jealous.
0: Yeah. Look, I'm joking. I You will definitely have the last laugh. But <laughs> if we're going to like talk about, OK, the prospect of what happened with the Weimar hyperinflation, it seems like, OK, it's probably not going to happen. I don't think our existing policies are on that route. But maybe we should actually learn about what really happened beyond just the memes of people uh, pushing wheelbarrows wheelbarrows of cash.
1: No, I totally agree. And I also think, you know, the Weimar Republic is sort of this scary story that everyone brings up when they're talking about inflation and people sort of throw the term or the name around. But actually, not that many people know exactly what happened, what drove it and how bad inflation actually got during that period. So I think it's a great idea to dig into the details.
0: Great. Well, I am very excited about uh, today's episode. We are going to have a uh, repeat guest. We talked to him back Uh, In the spring or summer, we're going to be speaking with Zach Carter. He is the author of The New York Times bestselling book, The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Paperback coming out April 20th. And there is a section in his book where he talks about the Weimar hyperinflation. So we thought we would dive into that and find out uh, what really happened. So, uh, Zach, thank you so much for coming back on AdLot. Thanks so much for having me. Before we start, have you heard of this? I saw this on Wikipedia last night when I was doing my uh, research. Zero stroke. Had you heard of that? No. <laughs> this is, is a this? thing. It's, this is a thing. It's on Wikipedia, so it must be real. There was a mental disorder diagnosed by physicians in Germany during the hyperinflation. I'm just reading the page. And the disorder was primarily characterized by the desire of patients to write endless rows of zeros, which are referred to as ciphers. And this is actually uh, even John Kenneth <laughs> Galbraith in his book about money talks about this. And there seems to be a few references. I guess it's real. It's kind of hard to believe. But apparently there really was a mental affliction where people just wrote zeros on pages uh, due wow. to hyperinflation.
2: I've read the Galbraith book on money. It's very good. I don't remember that particular episode, though. I, I, you know, this was a, a, a totally formative event for a lot of a lot of economic thinkers who would go on to have an extraordinary degree of influence you know Friedrich Hayek witnessed this um from Vienna and was just totally horrified and I think embarrassed by uh, by by what happened after the war in Germany and I think it shaped a lot of a lot of uh, you know sort of what we now call neoliberal views about how the world works and and what the great threats to the economy and democracy are and uh, obviously we still talk about it today even when i think it's yeah you know as you mentioned i think it's totally inappropriate to be to, to be invoking uh, you know the Weimar experience is something that we we might have in our you know in the near future here but it, it obviously animates our understanding of uh of the economy even today
1: well shall we dive into it then and and maybe start at the beginning. Um, Can you lay the scene for us of of what exactly Germany and I guess the uh, the developed world order looked like going into this episode of hyperinflation?
2: Yeah, I I think, you know, when we talk about this today, there's obviously a a kind of political lens that we see this through. Mm. You, You have Gold bugs and, you know, uh, inflation hawks tend to be more conservative (laughs) invoking this 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 episode. And you have, you know, soft hearted liberals and their soft money ways saying, don't worry about it. Uh, That wasn't really the way the politics of the time were were playing out. Um, There was a a consensus after World War One that the reparations duties that had been assigned to Germany, which lost World War I, um, were too stringent, too severe, that they they were unpayable and uh, they would result in economic turmoil for Europe and the world. And the person who issued this critique most famously was John Maynard Keynes, which is why I write, write about my book. Keynes in the early 1920s is not this sort of you know hero of of people like paul krugman and the and the kind of center left and further political sphere he's he's a very conventional establishment figure in the british government and his critique is heralded by none other than friedrich hayek uh, so this this idea is not something that is is being harbored only by you know like left wing socialists trying to you know bring about some sort of egalitarian millennium this is a very standard conventional view within germany and, and across europe and the size of these duties is so large. By, by 1920, the Reparations Commission that's established after World War I says Germany's going to need to pay about $33 billion. German pre-war GDP is about $12.5 billion. So this is like, triple the German annual output of the economy. It'd be like somebody saying today, uh, you know, by the way, the United States, you've got to run your economy, you know, solve whatever problems you want, but you owe $70 trillion somewhere else. And it's, and it's gotta be paid over the next, you know, several years. So these are huge, huge reparations figures that are, Looming over every decision that the German government is is trying to make, and the German government from the end of the war, really through uh, into the 1930s, is in a kind of perpetual state of revolution. Um, the the revolutions just just tend to fail. Um, communists like Rosa Luxemburg are, are murdered in the streets in 1919. Uh, Walter Rathenau, who is the the foreign minister, uh, sort of the the most important diplomat in the German government, he is murdered. Uh, by, by far right terrorists in 19, 1922, there is a, a communist uprising in Hamburg in uh, Hamburg, I think is the pronunciation, in October 1923, which is just a few weeks ahead of, of Hitler's famous Beer Hall Putsch in November of 1923. So there's just an enormous amount of political turmoil happening right now. You have hundreds of political assassinations happening every year. They do not have conditions of, of political stability in Germany, and so the political coalition that is trying to trying to govern is making choices with its budget um, to try and basically fend off uh, some sort of violent takeover of of the government, and it, it's and it's spending a lot of money in order to do that, and this is creating a very large budget deficit.
0: So, Zach, before we go further into the German budget, I just want to uh, uh, sort of get the background a little bit more about how the size of the German war debt or the German reparations were established. And you mentioned $33 uh, billion, multiple times the size of uh, German GDP. What, Where did this come from? What were the sort of like, you know, talk a little bit about how this number was established. What was the debt sort of denominated in at that time? Because I think obviously that's an important thing. And so like, you know, where did this, you know the end of the war happens, and then they have this number that they owe. Who do they owe, who do they owe it to, and so forth?
2: Right. So the, the the answer is it's extremely complicated. Keynes issues his critique in a book called The Economic Consequences of the Peace that comes out in 1919, and an interesting aspect of this critique is that it's enormously persuasive, but there actually hasn't been a formal reparations figure fixed by the conference they they've decided that there are going to be enormous economic duties on um, on Germany, but the peace conference at the end of the war doesn't arrive at a final figure. it arrives at a set of principles that are going to guarantee a very very high figure but the actual formal number is kicked to a reparations commission, which is going to be sort of overseen by the League of Nations. And they're going to spend the next year or two figuring out what this number will be. And And that number comes down from what some of the, uh, the calls are. I mean, there are calls for, you know, $120 billion reparations <laughs> duties at the Paris Peace Conference. And these numbers are just they're just totally ludicrous. Uh, they're not arrived at by making any kind of serious attempt to calculate what Germany can afford to pay. You just have the victors of the war sitting down and deciding, okay, how can we come up with the largest number possible? Germany is responsible for this terrible war that has killed all these people. Now we have to make them pay. We'll come up with the biggest figure we can and then negotiate down as it becomes clear that this is you know, not economically feasible. The result of this is that you have a series of efforts to renegotiate the actual German reparations duty over the course of the 1920s. Every year or two, all of the major diplomats in Europe meet to try and, and move this figure down a little bit from wherever it was set the year before. And in fact, this happens right, right before the, the hyperinflation. Um, the, the, the British intervene and say, look, this $33 billion figure is crazy. Let's, let's set it at something about equal to the pre-war GDP level of $12.5 billion but you know, even this is a, is a a very large number for a country that is in the throes of a revolution to be trying to trying to meet um in terms of how how it's paid this is the the sort of uh, you know loose era of the gold standard the gold standard comes apart during world war 1 but there is a uh, an understanding that the world is going to get back on gold. So it, you know what is it denominated in? it's It's denominated in currencies that are expected to be fixed to gold at fixed exchange rates, but are not quite there yet. And so you know, understanding the true value of these numbers becomes a little bit of a you know a, a metaphysically uncertain endeavor. But there is a consensus, and not just on the left here that the, that the figure is, is too high. And that, uh, that consensus has a, a sort of political significance that impacts the way currency traders who you, you have these sophisticated uh, speculative currency markets that develop after the war, because the, the the gold standard has been broken, and these currencies are not fixed to a certain amount of gold. The traders and 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 markets are are relying on these kinds of political judgments uh, and and opinions as as they make their um you know, make their investments. Before the war, uh, the, uh, the mark trade was was fixed at about four to one to to the dollar. By the end of the war, it's about sixty five to one. So Ger- Germany has relied on a policy of deliberate inflation to finance its war machine. All of the governments did to some extent, but Germany was was the most extreme. Um, so you know the, the dollar has has inflated quite a bit over the course of the war too. So sixty five to one against the dollar is sixty five to one against an inflated dollar. Uh, but by nineteen twenty one. Really, for whatever reason, the international community has has come to a consensus that that Germany is stabilized, and so the 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 sort of wartime and post war inflation that keeps going up and up and up plateaus. And you you have uh, for a few months and about six months in 1921, it looks like it looks like things are going to be okay. There's about two billion dollars in international investment that comes into into Germany through you know what we would today called markets. And and this is, it it looks like things are going to be okay. But then over the course of 1921, you have a series of political developments, which cause all of that foreign investment to evaporate. And you start seeing um, the the inflation take off again. The the, the point I want to emphasize is that there are a lot of decisions that are made by the German government that you can criticize. If you end up in, in a situation of hyperinflation, it's not because <laughs> your your finance ministers have done everything wonderfully, but they are in a very difficult predicament. And most of the problems that I think uh, we associate with um, the most of the problems that are that are most directly responsible for this hyperinflation are political problems that are reflected then in, in market confidence, not uh, not problems with, say, you know, the, the quantity of currency in circulation or the velocity of money or, or, or things like that.
1: So I'm really glad you brought up the political turmoil point, because I think um, a a lot of people tend to forget that Germany was absolutely terrified of communism in, you know, the late, well, in the 1920s. A lot of people think they just kind of went straight to Nazism or, you know, fascism. But actually, there was this huge, huge ideological debate um, that went on for years and a real tug of war in power. So. How do you think that played out in terms of the government spending? So they're running up a big deficit. A big chunk of that is going on reparations, which you just outlined very well. What else were they spending on?
2: So it's what we would today call you know social social welfare spending uh, in the in 1920 and 1921. Uh, Germany moves to an eight-hour workday, so people are working less than than they had been. Um, they start p- paying unemployment benefits to people who don't have jobs. And during the sort of heavy inflation era right after the war, 19, 1920, 19, where all the countries of the war, world are having heavy inflation, not hyperinflation, um, the unemployment rate is very high. Um, so there's a lot of people who you know, are having trouble paying their bills and making ends meet. And they're offering health care and food relief to the sick and the poor. And there are a lot of sick and poor people in Germany. The Allied blockade at the end of the war probably killed 400,000 people through starvation. And in the cities in particular, uh, in Germany and Austria, you have a lot of hunger and just very, very serious destitution uh, in a way that I think, people living in European cities today have trouble imagining. So the the, the material conditions are, are really quite severe, and they are spending quite a bit of, of money on these things. But the, the, the government, which is sort of a center-left government, feels like it doesn't have a, a choice. It, it feels like its political coalition will fa- fall apart if it doesn't find some way to materially support all of these citizens the the threat uh, for most people is is perceived uh, as being from the left more so than than from the right i think in the in the ruling elite at, at first at paris people forget Keynes before he became this this you know sort of hero for american liberalism uh, you know his his chief ally at the paris peace conference was a man named herbert hoover uh and Herbert Hoover, of course, would become sort of his bêt noir in the Great Depression. But in 1919, they agreed that there was this terrible threat uh, from both the left and the right of, of authoritarian violence if – there wasn't uh, some way to feed and and clothe the people of, of the of Germany that this this sort of Soviet Hoover was particularly worried about the Soviet tide um, sweeping across Germany. Keynes was a little more worried about a right-wing tide, but there was a, a consensus that authoritarianism was coming if the sort of moderate, Liberal democracy couldn't couldn't prove that it worked with uh, with with citizens in the streets. So they're paying a lot on, on these social welfare things, and, and they may they may be paying too much. I mean, the the inflation that takes over before things get really out of control by uh, 1922, I think prices increase about forty times. I mean, this is this is not you know a, a slight amount of inflation that, that we're talking about, but you know the. The coalition in Germany, you you have very conservative members of uh, of the Reichstag, people like Hugo uh, Stinsteins. I, I get my German pronunciation mixed up, uh, but this is like a coal baron who's saying Your lives are worth more than money. Uh, if we don't, if we the only the only choice we have for for keeping this government together is is to inflate the currency. We just we can't, you know, we we don't have the the, the productive power right now after this war to 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 make this happen with you know ordinary wealth.
0: So, you know, we joked uh, in the beginning about how every time there is a stimulus here, QE, whatever, people invoke uh, comparisons to uh, Weimar hyperinflation. But one difference it sounds like is, you know, we might get inflation here. I mean, there are many differences, but we might get inflation here as a potential cost of doing stimulus or whatever. It sounds like uh, then it was not seen as a potential cost, but that was the deliberate strategy, that that was inflation was seen as the path out as opposed to perhaps an acceptable cost of something else we want to achieve, which is how people would probably characterize current U.S. macro policy.
2: Yeah, I, th- I think in in the current context, people who uh, declare with absolute certainty what they think the consequences of r- you know, running these multi-trillion dollar same as programs are going to be, I, I think that certainty is is difficult to take seriously. But the the idea that there is uh, you know a risk that's worth taking seems to be the the assessment from from people who are supportive of these of uh, these packages. They're not saying, you know, we're certain to get double digit inflation if we do this. So let's do it because double digit inflation is good, and that's the best outcome we can hope for. Um, th- you know, I, I think. Rathenau, shortly before he was murdered, just a matter of hours, he's in this, this big meeting where they're talking about the budget. And he says, you know, our economy is, is like a, a city that's surrounded by an army. And the only way out is, is, to, is to break through the line somehow. And it's going to be really costly and we're going to lose a lot of, of soldiers if we break through this line. But it's the only chance we, we have. So that's how he feels about the hyperinflation. This, this is not great, but it's what we've got. And if we don't do it, we're going to be destroyed. Uh, and, you know, I, maybe he was wrong, but it, the, the, the political judgment at the time, uh, they don't have a whole lot of, of good options. And of course, Rathenau is literally assassinated by right-wing death squads hours after making that comment. Uh, so the, the, the parallels, th- there just aren't a lot of parallels politically between what's happening in Weimar Germany and any of the crises that we've seen, certainly in the United States in, in the decades since. Um, but the, the devastation that results from the hyperinflation is so severe uh, that I think people, thinkers from this time, are are, are scarred by it in in ways that um, are 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 hard to understand for for people who didn't live through it.
1: Can you talk a little bit about how um, class played into inflation? Because I'm sure people, you know, different segments of society and the political sphere had different opinions um, about this policy and inflation. You mentioned Hugo Stinnis just then as someone who was, you know, sort of fighting for full employment. But, you know, it's also true he was a huge industrialist, and I think conglomerates did pretty well during an inflationary era. So some people have argued that he was basically just talking out of self-interest because if he got inflation, it would benefit him. So I'm just curious, like, how did the different segments of society feel about this policy? Like if you were going to look at the middle class, the upper class and the lower class, can you segment it out?
2: I I don't know if if class in Germany at this period of time translates as obviously to class in our own moment. um, As i I think we might intuitively want it to. I, I think your your point there though that, that someone like Stennis is talking his own book is almost it's almost certainly true. Um, it, it certainly is true. Um but I also think a lot of these people, you know, people have a tendency to believe things that benefit them, right? Um and, and Stennis is otherwise a conservative. So you 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 do have these these kind of conservative thinkers thinking this this could be smart policy, even you know, and and, and good for me. if you look at the unemployment rate though. During this kind of 40-fold increase in prices that happens in 1922, and and here we are not talking about the hyperinflation with 40-fold increases in prices. I mean, this is an enormous, enormous uh, inflationary period, but this is not anywhere near what's going to happen in 1923. But over this 1922 period, wages are basically keeping pace with price increases. So people don't feel materially poor. the people who are really getting screwed are people who have large holdings of assets that are uh, demarcated in in the mark. Um, and even then, if you can dump your marks for something else and you know if you can trade them for gold or other currencies, um, you can live pretty well. It, it, there's there's a, a remarkable phenomenon of foreigners living in in Berlin at this period of time where because the prices in marks are just going totally crazy if you have a lot of foreign currency you can live like a total king <laughs> if you're hanging out in in in, in the Weimar world which was just you know despite all the violence a really culturally vibrant Vibrant place, but the unemployment rate is is for the first time in several years you know, since the war has has basically come down to a, a, a reasonable level. You don't have the high joblessness in in Germany during this period that you have, say, in in Britain. And Britain's basically having suffering from du- double digit unemployment from the end of the war to the outbreak of World War Two. Same thing in France. So so you have uh, a, an inflationary problem that is that is. Hurting German investors, uh, but for ordinary people trying to go to work, it's it's kind of annoying to have to keep track of prices. But but wages really are keeping a pace, and and people are working, so it doesn't feel like a a material disaster in the moment. And I think that that alleviates a lot of the political pressure to adopt a you know what we would consider a more sound or fiscally responsible budgetary position because economically, it's it it, it seems to be working for most people.
0: So this gets to uh, and you talk about this in your book, like this early stages of it. There is a lot of um, extreme inflation, but wages are roughly keeping track and also uh, unemployment is low. So when does it become this sort of hyperinflation of legends, cash and wheelbarrows, words uh, like numbers like quadrillion being thrown about? Like, when does that start to begin and why?
2: There's a very clear break that happens um, when the French government decides to occupy the Ruhr Valley. And this is a territory, you know, the border between France and Germany. It is the industrial core of the German economy. It's where all of the the mining and industrial wealth of, of Germany is. And under the Treaty of Versailles that ended World War I, if Germany fails to make its reparations payments on time, on schedule, then France will get the right to take over this territory. And Germany misses its reparations payments, even under the you know, lower uh, negotiated figures of the, of the Reparations Commission in these further efforts from the British government to lower even the reparations commissions uh, amount, the the German government misses the payment and France essentially invades. And when that happens, you have a total loss of international confidence in the mark. It happens very quickly. Uh, You start seeing the, the mark uh, <laughs> instead of being sixty five or a thousand to one, uh, it starts being measured in, in millions uh, against the dollar and this continues in part because of the political situation, in part because of the the German government's choice to finance a campaign of what they call passive resistance to the occupation, which basically means paying a lot of money to people um, who don't want to leave the rural valley. Because you know, once the the French troops will arrive, so Germany had been running about a 750 million a year budget deficit that doubles to 1.5 billion dollars a year. Um, again, a large deficit, but uh, you know, about 10 percent of of pre war uh, GDP, a little more than 10 percent. So, so not something completely ludicrous, but they they are they are going deeper into uh into the the deficit territory than they already were and of course they're having 40-fold price increases beforehand so i I don't think when i say i don't think it's completely ludicrous it's it's a very large deficit um but it's not like you can dollar for dollar see oh okay this currency issuance led to this amount of, of inflation there is a a Huge loss of confidence in the political project of of Weimar Germany, and then there's no reason that the 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 government is giving to have any confidence in their willingness to um, abate from inflationary policies as as that that collapse is happening. So the German government invades the the mark, just immediately spirals out of control, and it and it just goes into complete crazy crazy land. After this, uh, it's I, I think it. it they stop measuring when it gets to about a trillion to one. Sometime in nineteen twenty four, marks to dollars, so it's it's a political collapse is is what happens. And you have, of course, the beer hall push from from Hitler and and Ludendorff, which is more famous than the the uprising in Hamburg. But but politically, the government is just is just wiped out, and and they have to essentially start over. I, I think one important factor here uh, is. That's not just one important factor, but an important factor here is is the way that this is viewed internationally. The hyperinflation is not in the moment viewed as just merely an extreme act of recklessness by the German government. Uh, There is an immediate effort to renegotiate the Treaty of Versailles and lower the reparations obligations to Germany when this happens. And the French invasion is viewed as as politically illegitimate, um, not just within Germany, but by the Americans and by the British government. And that's that's really quite something because, of course, the Americans and the French and the British were allies during the war. They crafted the the peace treaty, and France was really just abiding by the terms of of the treaty. Germany didn't make good on its reparations, and France said, "Okay, well, we're gonna we're gonna go in," and all of France's allies abandon it and and basically say Germany is in the right here. We've we've got to to renegotiate this, and the renegotiations uh, become known as as the Young Plan, and it's it's. It's officially performed by a, a couple of J.P. Morgan bankers, uh, but they're really acting as sort of deputies for um, the the U.S. foreign policy establishment. And this this changes the way that uh, that, that Germany is governed, and so the the, the politics change, and and the <laughs> the currency can be can be stabilized. But first, you you basically have to have a completely new international. Political regime and consensus um, that replaces the old one and 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 that until that happens, Germany cannot be stabilized financially
1: so I have what might be a dumb question just before we get into you know what actually resolved this inflationary episode, but it during the worst of the price increases, how were people actually keeping track of prices because you know nowadays if you think about inflation we've got a bunch of indices obviously but also if the cost of your cup of coffee like increased tenfold while you were drinking it i think everyone would you know probably photograph their receipt and put it on social media and talk about it and we'd have almost instantaneous knowledge that inflation was happening but i, I can't really imagine what it was like back then like at, how did people actually monitor you know how quickly prices for things were changing.
2: They couldn't is is the answer. Uh, <laughs> I think over the course of um, 1922, you could you could you could go into the grocery store one day and say, okay, well this is how much you know a bag of flour costs. And so the next day you say, oh, it's, it's even higher. Um, it it just the, the money became became worthless, and so you had uh, you had people. You you had huge theft and looting problems where people would just steal from stores and then go into um, what are sometimes referred to as flea markets. But you you basically had barter in the streets where uh, ordinary people trying to make ends meet were having to trade goods for goods instead of uh, paying with, with wheelbarrows full of cash. I mean, workers were still being paid in these giant stacks of money, but you couldn't really do anything with them. I mean, (laughs) when <laughs> you're talking about millions of marks to uh, you know to, to pay for a sandwich or something at a diner i mean how how do you get that stuff across the counter i mean you just can't so so you do have this 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 kind of funny wheelbarrow thing but that's mostly workers taking their cash home from work that they then can't do anything with the actual terms of commerce commerce becomes a barter system and and <laughs> you have you have a total breakdown
0: No, you know, I, I asked in the beginning um, if you had heard of the Zero Stroke and you said no. I don't even know. I'm like, I'm not totally convinced this is real. Like, even though apparently it was written about, it still seems kind of crazy. You could get why this was like such a, I mean, obviously, such a scarring thing that it still dominates discourse to this day. And of course, we know the Germans to this day remain uh, sort of like famous for their commitment to more like a hard uh, money approach. I mean, it was just, you know, complete societal devastation.
2: Yes, and it was humiliating to right. people in Germany. I mean, the national pride was was complete. They they, they just lost a war, uh, which was you know n- people don't like to lose wars, and and now they they were sort of a, a, an inter- international laughing stock. They they couldn't even they couldn't even run a monetary economy, and, and Germany had been prior to the war, you know the. It, if not the industrial powerhouse of Europe, one of the two alongside Britain, it was it was a you know a major rising superpower in world affairs, and and suddenly it's it's just a complete a complete mess, and and you know you have people on the streets you know talking about exchange rates and <laughs> and, and concerned with these things that have nothing to do with the course of ordinary life in a prosperous society, uh, so yeah it's it's a uh, it's something that I mean. Friedrich Hayek never forgets it. He he carries this with him for for the rest of his life. And and it's it's not just you know the the, the blow to national pride is not just on the right. It's it's not just people like Hitler. People like Hitler are able to uh, to to rise to power because there is a widespread feeling of uh, of of resentment and and humiliation um, across German society. And it makes it very difficult for social democracy in in it's sort of more moderate modes to to sustain itself.
1: So, before we get to the legacy of Weimar hyperinflation, can can we go through what exactly ended it or like how did it all come to a halt? Because it's not like the government just sat by waiting for this to pass. They did actively try to do things to mitigate it and so did the international community as you already mentioned by, you know, looking at reparations and and lowering them. So, uh, what worked and what didn't?
2: It's an international fix, and then and then there's there's essentially a, a wipeout of the currency and and a, a starting from scratch. So it, it, they the German government never stops its campaign of passive resistance. So it's it's one point five billion dollar a year deficit uh, is is continuing, and the idea that the French occupation is illegitimate um, is is. Held across the political spectrum in Germany, nobody wants. N- no politician wants. From any any party wants to be caught saying, you know, they they don't support resistance uh, to to this unlawful thing that the French government has done. Even though, of course, it's it's perfectly legal under international law. What what happens is is a, a, a new currency, um, but a new currency with a new political milieu, which is the Young Plan, um, and the Young Plan is essentially a program of of issuing large loans to <laughs> France and Germany uh, so that both France and Germany stop complaining about the terms of, of the treaty. The, the reason German reparations are so high during the war is partly just, you know, Victor's sort of uh, excess, but also because there's really serious damage that's been done, particularly in France. And so there's there's a very expensive project of, of rebuilding that needs to take place. And the, the French economy has been damaged in such a way that it's hard to do with domestic capital. So getting money from Germany, helping France rebuild, having France then pay its war debts to Britain and the United States, the United States ends up with all this money at the end. The obvious player to support Europe through this period is the United States. And so with the Young Plan, I think there's a $200 million loan to Germany and a 100 million loan to France. And this matters not only financially, because Germany can then afford to start you know, actually meeting obligations with money that isn't printed out of thin air, um, it matters symbolically because the United States has come in and said, okay, we get it. We need to support Europe here. And if we don't, everything will fall apart. And so this buys several years of uh, relative economic stability in Europe. Um, and you you have this this system where essentially the United States lends a lot of money to Germany through different channels. Germany pays you know some form of reparations duties to France and to Britain, and then Britain pays the war debts that it's accumulated over the course of uh of nineteen thirteen to 1919 19 to the United States, which then has all this money which it lends back to Germany. So this cycle of funds keeps going until basically until you have financial crises that that unwind it and uh and and then you have the Great Depression. So <laughs> you have 20 years of, of economic dysfunction, but a relative period of stability here once the United States steps in and says, We're going to pay uh to keep Europe afloat.
0: So in the in the folk history of Weimar Germany that gets told on the internet through memes. It's like Germany uh, printed a bunch of money and then that was really terrible. And uh, then the Nazis came to power because that was so terrible. And it doesn't sound like that is actually the correct sequence of things. When do, in this sort of like the sequence of things, what are the conditions prior to, you know, sort of between the massive hyperinflation and then what you described and then the conditions that did, in fact, uh, sort of precede uh, the rise of the Nazis?
2: It's a long period of time, uh, <laughs> so it's it's hard to, it's hard to classify it as one particular thing. But uh, Weimar Germany has its ups and downs like the rest of um, of Europe over this period. But the the second half of the 1920s is much more prosperous and much more stable than the first half. It is the financial turmoil of the early 1930s that really unwinds things and and brings the Nazis to power. In 1930 you have a huge run on a bank called Credit Anstalt in Vienna and Credit Anstalt is a very large politically connected bank. Uh it's it's got people from all of the you know big European banking families on the board. It's not so much the size that matters, but the sort of prestige of the institution. If this bank could fail, think about what this means for the Austrian economy. And on the gold standard, of course, if governments spend too much, they can run out of gold and their currency can be destroyed. And there's a a fear that is sparked among investors when credit on stock. Stalt fails in 1930, that the Austrian government is going to spend so much money supporting its banking system that they will no longer be able to support gold convertibility. And so people start dumping uh, Austrian bonds and and Austrian currency. You You have a run on the shilling. That quickly spreads to a run on the German mark because, of course, the economies of Germany and Austria are closely intertwined. So the idea that Austria won't be able to meet its obligations creates fears that Germany will will support it and not be able to meet its obligations. And this eventually spreads to a run on the British pound for similar reasons. So... The idea being that British foreign investment in Germany will will make the uh, the British untenable. So you very quickly over the course of 1930 to 1931 have a total collapse of the entire international financial system in this sort of latter stage of the gold standard. This By by the 1930s, everybody's back on gold. It's not working super well, but it hasn't been a disaster. But suddenly with this financial crisis, everybody's wrecked, and the gold standard is gone. And you have a period of absolutely crushing deflation That takes over across all of Europe. There has been deflation for much of the 1920s, but it accelerates dramatically in 1930 and 1931 with the collapse of the European financial system. This is also happening in the United States after the the, the, the big precipitous event in the United States is the crash of the stock market in 1929, which most financial historians now i think accept uh, is connected to the financial crisis of 1930 1931 in europe but these these events are are, are basically doing away with the banking system's ability to meet the the industrial demands of of society, and so you have terrible deflation that takes hold, and massive, massive unemployment, and the period that we now know we now think of as the Great Depression sets in, and and that's that's where that's where Hitler comes from economically. You know, there's all sorts of other cultural things happening in Germany. The anti-Semitism is obviously very well known, uh, but. But the economic grounds, there, there is widespread misery in Germany at this p- period in time, but it's a different kind of, mi- the, the misery is similar, but it's a different cause than than in um, in 1923. You've gone from hyperinflation in 1923 to very severe deflation in 1932.
1: So you've mentioned this a couple of times already, but this idea that The whole um, episode had a really big impact on a lot of economists at the time. And these economists, of course, went on to have a really big impact on economics itself for, you know, decades to come. But can you walk us through the, the legacy of Weimar inflation? Like, how did it actually end up shaping and impacting economic thought and policy afterwards?
2: I think it's a really complicated question because economics is always kind of moving by fits and starts in different directions at the same time. I think it it causes a kind of a kind of crisis within. the the sort of liberal, broad Enlightenment liberal tradition that had not been anticipated ahead of the war. So people like Hayek and Keynes were very much simpatico in 1912, 1913. I think they had very similar views of the world. Hayek was enamored with the glories of of the sort of pre-war Austrian empire. Keynes is is, is very taken with the glories of the British empire. Um, but they have very divergent reactions to what happens from 1923 onward. Um, they, they even agree on, you know, with, with what is. They even agree with the problems with the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, but, but from the, the hyperinflation moment on, they take totally different interpretations uh, of of what has gone wrong and, and what needs to be fixed. Keynes comes to believe that governments need to support their economies in order to prevent the kind of political chaos that has unfolded in Germany. And Hayek comes to believe that it's this irresponsible spending of the the German government on these social welfare programs, which uh, invited the catastrophe to begin with. So they they have totally opposite views of what the source of the, the hyperinflation was. And of course, you know, data and things like this are nowhere near as precise um, as they are today, and, and even today, you know the, the exact same set of data can spark <laughs> wildly divergent interpretations from people in, in economics. Um, but both, both Hayek and Keynes have have, I think, pretty um, compelling stories to tell about about what went wrong. I mean, the German government did spend an enormous amount of money; it was on social welfare programs, and uh, if you are Inclined to believe that uh, you know we we live in a hard world and um, inequality is is kind of a fact of nature, not a not a political choice. Then it looks like uh, the, the German government was was reckless in, in doing things that that were irresponsible. If you believe that the economic possibilities for our grandchildren, as Keynes uh, once said, are, are quasi utopian uh, and that in fact the world is richer than it's ever been before and and has the capacity to improve life for everyone in it um, then i think it's easier to believe that this was a uh, you know a, a political disaster rather than a, a, an act of excessive kindheartedness um within the 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 sort of debates of the of the 1930s hayek has uh, a lot of allies in in the British sort of economic establishment. Um, he's not really a famous guy in, in the 1930s. He becomes famous uh, in, in the 1940s with a, a political book called The Road to Serfdom. But the, the real economic leader of this school of thought that we've come to associate um, with Hayek is a guy named Lionel Robbins, and he's at the London School of, of Economics. And Robbins is someone who espouses views that I think we would today associate with... With Milton Friedman or, um, or 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 Friedrich Hayek, and he's constantly fighting with Keynes over over public work spending and whether it's it's possible to create economic growth through public works or through budget deficits. And within Britain, by the end of the nineteen thirties, Robbins has basically recanted and said, you know, Keynes was right. And this view that uh, that we come we come to call neoliberalism is is really consigned to a tiny kind of quirky, oddball, um, intellectual minority. And it's not until the 1970s that this school of thought becomes dominant again. And that's largely due... To a lot of really impressive sort of social work that uh, that Hayek does organizing people who see the world the way he does and and help having them, you know, write papers and write books and and tell stories about how the economy works that are similar to uh, to his own worldview.
1: So one last thing but i i know we've talked a lot about whether or not this period of history has any relevance to the financial and economic system right now but it, it, and you've been quite clear that you don't really think it does but is there anything that you think we have in common now with um this is a really dark question with <laughs> the Weimar Republic and No it's a good question though.
0: I'm <laughs> glad you asked it. Yeah. <laughs> You know, financially, no, but politically,
2: I, yeah, I do worry. Um, I, it's one of the reasons why I wrote um, the biography of Keynes when I did. I, I felt like after the financial crisis, you know, there's a difference between an economic crisis that's brought on by uh, the quick collapse of a banking system and one that's brought on by, you know, a, a world war. Um, so there are clearly differences. But I, I do think we, we live in a moment where we have authoritarian violence rising, not only in the United States, but around the world which makes it uh and we're we're kind of reluctant to see the international dimension to that to that crisis. It it plays out in the United States through the 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 patterns of of history that have that have been here. So um the American version of it is different than the British version or the or the the German version, but there's obviously a rising tide of authoritarian um thought and authoritarian violence um around the world right now and The the outbursts of violence in the United States are the sort of outbursts that, looking backwards, if something terrible happens, you would say, ah, that was clearly a precursor. I think the Capitol Hill riot on January 6th uh, is an extremely, extremely dangerous event um, that most of us don't want to think about because it's <laughs> the implications of it as a, as a sort of uh, 21st century putsch event are are really terrifying. But we do have uh, a, a lot of right wing resentment in in the United States right now, um, and 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 we are not unique to that. That was true in the 1920s and 30s too. Um, the, the rise of fascism in Germany. Um, was not an isolated event. It played out according to uh, a set of historically contingent German proclivities in Germany, but you also saw it in Italy. You also saw it in France, not in France, in, um, in Spain. And you saw less successful versions of it in, in France and the United States. I mean, uh, when, when FDR came to power in 1932, uh, there was an enormous amount of violence in, in American society. Um, and it wasn't obvious that the political project was going to hold together I, I hope that that's not where we're going but I, I think it would be silly to pretend that um, there there aren't some overtones of that um, of that era in our own time
0: yeah I'm glad you asked that Tracy because I think that was a uh, very important very important answer Zach Carter thank you so much for uh, coming back on oddlot Thanks so much for having me and good luck with the uh, the uh, release of the paperback thank you so much
1: Thanks Zach. that was great.
0: Uh, Tracy, I I actually thought your question at the end was the best there, because I do think like setting aside um, the sort of Weimar question for a second, like whenever I think about like, you know, what's worrisome or what could cause hyperinflation, I do think it's exactly sort of that. And what, he, what Zach pointed out, which is like, it's probably not going to come because, oh, we like, you know, spent some X amount of billions more than we should have it seems much more likely to come because like something political just causes people to lose faith in the existing system.
1: Yeah. I guess inflation is always and everywhere a political problem. Right. Yeah. I actually think I I think that. No, I'm I'm being serious. I know that sounds flippant, but I I think there's a lot of truth to that. And yeah. And I think also this idea that Zach was talking about that, you know, Germany didn't just go out and decide to run a massive deficit for the sake of it and to screw over all the people it owed money to in the form of reparations, although that was, of course, part of it. But a big part of the government spending also came from these social programs, which were targeted at, you know, achieving full employment helping people live a better life and also trying to make people happy to try to dampen down that political turmoil.
0: Right. That Yeah. It, like it's really the entire combination. So the the hard currency mm-hmm. debt, uh, the um, the collapse. I mean, one of the things that people talk about is like to get true, like inflation or hyperinflation, you need some sort of like supply side disruption. And so, of course, you had the war itself and then the uh, French invasion after the uh, debts weren't paid. So that further diminished the German uh, industrial capacity. You have the domestic political turmoil. And Zach laid out all of the various assassinations and uprisings and things that were happening uh, during this period. So it really was like a uh, it was a unique stew of very bad things that happened that uh, that caused this episode. Yeah.
1: But again, like the thing that comes through from that conversation is that inflation is a political choice sometimes, although it yeah. can spin out of control.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Like the one thing it's not is just a function of, oh, we want to run expansionary fiscal policy. Like there could be like the political situation that forced Germany to have to choose between paying its uh, external debts and domestic debts. Like there were, there were aspects of that, but it's clearly not just a sort yeah. of like, you know, it's not a simple it's not a policy. It's not a simple policy
1: thing. No. Um, on that note, shall we leave it there?
0: Yeah, let's leave it there on that happy note.
1: <laughs> this has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway.
0: And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our guest, Zach Carter. He's at Zach D. Carter. And check out his book, The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes, paperback out April 20th. Follow our producer, Laura Carlson. She's at Laura M. Carlson. Follow the Bloomberg head of podcast, Francesca Levy, at Francesca Today. And check out all of our podcasts at Bloomberg under the handle at podcasts. Thanks for listening.